Psalm 19. It's a beautiful psalm, one of the most recognizable ones in Scripture, and we're going to read it all together this morning. If you don't have a Bible with you, it'll also be on the screen behind me. So this is what it says in Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving its chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there's great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent, O God, from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins, and let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. You may be seated at this time. Well, I want to welcome you to White Oak this morning on this Memorial Day weekend. Uh, It's good to see you guys. My name is James, as I said. I'm one of the pastors here. Pastor John is out on vacation, I think, on his five-year wedding anniversary. So congratulations to John and Halsey on that. Uh, But this week, we're sort of in between sermon series. Last week, we finished up A New Normal, which we looked at the different ways that Jesus changes our lives when we begin to follow him. And next week, we're beginning summer in the Proverbs, which is going to be a really good uh, beginning of the summer for us. We're going to talk about really practical ways that the Bible speaks into the issues and the issues that we have in our life. And so I encourage you guys to come and be a part of that next week. Uh, But this week, because we're in between series, it kind of gives us the ability to get a little creative and to do something a little bit different. And so what we decided to do is we decided to use this Sunday to explore with you the intersection between three things that are really important for our church. Two of them you probably know, and one of them is sort of more behind the scenes and influences John and I. The first of these things, and these things you could say are maybe our personality. They're what shapes the personality and the ethos of our church. And the first is our church vision. We we exist to help people in near northwest Houston see the wonder of the gospel and fully follow Jesus. So here at this church, you hear about wonder a lot and about being amazed and astonished about who God is and about life in general. Second, we have been shaped by the superior importance that we place on the Bible as the Word of God. Our life and our vitality flows out of this book as a church— So when this book is open, life and vitality flows from our church. And when this book is closed, life and vitality do not flow from our church. And third, and this is the one that you may not have realized, we'll see how a man named Clive Staples Lewis, better known as C.S. Lewis, helps you and I to see and to recognize and to live in the wonder of the gospel. 
I've entitled this talk this morning, Alive to Wonder, C.S. Lewis on the Scriptures. And the title comes from my research on this man who has influenced the way that we look at the Scriptures and influenced the way that we interpret life. And as I was doing research on this, I I came across a John Piper uh, article and book that immensely helped me prepare for this this morning. And so I've entitled it with the same name, Alive to Wonder which is the vision and purpose of our church, is helping you and to me come alive to wonder every single day. I've no doubt that many of you have heard the name of C.S. Lewis. He's considered by many to be one of the most influential Christian authors in the 20th century. You may know him from his books, The Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, You may know him from the book that he wrote called Mere Christianity, which is an apologetic book on the Christian faith. You may know him from one of the other 38 books that he wrote, fiction books and nonfiction books and essays and poetry. You may know C.S. Lewis by one of his many quotes that get shared on Facebook all the time if you're on there, such as, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not, because, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. Or if you're not familiar with C.S. Lewis this morning, then if I may be frank... I think your world might about to change. You see, when Pastor John and I preach, what we typically do is we'll go to a text and we'll read it and we'll study it and we'll pray over it. We'll also go to different commentaries and different teachers of old and in our modern age and we'll, we'll listen to these men and women and they'll help shape the way that we understand it. And that's what you hear whenever we preach. But this morning, I want to act as a bridge between you and C.S. Lewis and the gospel because Lewis has thought deeply about life. And so when I go to the Word, I will also, often also go to Lewis and see what does he say about a passage or what does he say about life because he has thought deeply about these things. I want to push Christian biography and other Christian teachers on you guys because I believe that when we walk with people who have thought deeply about God, a little bit of them rubs off on us, right? And that's what I want for you this morning. I hope that in introducing you to C.S. Lewis that his amazement of God will rub off on you. But first, a snapshot of C.S. Lewis This morning's not a biography, don't worry, you did not walk into a classroom, Uh, this still is the chapel of our church, but I I wanted to give a little biographical sketch of Lewis to show you that he was human, that he was a man, that he suffered, that he was imperfect, but that over his life he began to follow Jesus and it shaped the way that he understood his life. So a few notes about Lewis. Clive Staples Lewis, also known as C.S. Lewis, was born in 1898 in Belfast, Ireland. His mother died of cancer when he was just shy of 10 years old, and obviously this was a very traumatic experience for him, right? It would be traumatic for anyone. But not only did he lose his mother to cancer, his father never really recovered from his death. And so he and his brother, the the, the home life that they had before his mother died was never quite the same. And in fact, it shaped him so much that he said at the age of 10, he left Christianity. Like his mother's church that he went to, he walked away from and he said, God is either cruel or he doesn't exist. And that's the way that he thought for about 30 years of his life, that God is either cruel or simply does not exist. In his formative years, Lewis entered the world of the Oxford University in 1970 and spent most of the rest of his academic and professional life there. And if you're familiar with Lewis at all, he, you, you know he's an intellectual, right? 
He's like an intellectual's intellectual. He's the kind of guy, the kind of intellectual that we all secretly kind of wish we were. All of us who are sort of in school and like to read, uh, we we see people like C.S. Lewis and we just secretly wish that we were them. He was involved in book clubs, a man of bookshops and poetry, of pipes and pubs. He was an English professor of Renaissance literature at Oxford and had a circle of friends who formed a literary group called the Inklings. And if you don't know anything about the Inklings, it doesn't really matter, except that one person, one other guy who was in that group was named J.R.R. Tolkien, the writer of Lord of the Rings. C.S. Lewis and Tolkien were almost best friends in their later or or middle-aged life. Lewis reflects in his autobiography called Surprised by Joy that in his 20s he was an avowed atheist, and yet he would experience moments in his life that he called capital J Joy. That he said there would be these moments in his life ever since he was a child up and through his 20s where he felt glimpses of another world. That he felt in his heart a a longing for something that this world could not satisfy. And the more he read literature, what he found was that when he read Christian authors, he felt that more than when he didn't read Christian authors. And then he began to talk to his friend Tolkien more, and Tolkien showed him that the longings in his heart were actually longings for the story behind all stories, Jesus Christ. As Lewis himself would later remark, if we find ourselves with the desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. Although he wasn't a perfect man, he spent the rest of his life as a Christian apologist and writer and lover of God. And later in life, at age 58, he married a woman named Joy, who died four years later of sickness. Only this time, his grief did not turn him away from God as it had when he was a child, but instead it caused him to reflect on the goodness of God and what he gives and what he takes away. And he wrote a book entitled A Grief Observed. Lewis died in 1963 at the age of 64, and his contributions to Christianity are almost incalculable. Like, even if you have never read any C.S. Lewis, you have probably been influenced a little bit by his way of thinking and his train of thought and the way that he approached the scriptures. But this morning, I want to focus on the biggest influence that Lewis has had on our church, which is the concept of wonder. The concept of joy, the concept of amazement, or whatever you want to call it, C.S. Lewis has been immensely helpful to me as a pastor and to John as a pastor in thinking about wonder in the Christian life and seeing that we are meant to be amazed at the glory and the goodness of God each and every day. And that's why we want to make that central to our church. It's in our vision to help people come alive to the wonder of the gospel. So what I want to do now is show you three ways in which C.S. Lewis helps us come alive to wonder. Because the devastating truth is that most of us, most humans, do not live life in wonder. For most of us humans, we live life in a world of stress and of not being inclined to see how wonderful God is. The Bible speaks to this. It says, the God of this world, meaning Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So we naturally see the beauty of the sunrise, and yet we totally miss the beauty of the person who makes the sun to rise. That's what the Bible is talking about and what Lewis talked about. And even we Christians, as we go about our normal day-to-day lives, are blinded and are missing the beauty of Jesus Christ. 
So from time to time, we need to be awakened. We've got to be stirred. We've got to be jolted out of our stupor and out of our busyness and out of our stress and out of our life to experience those glimpses of God. That's what Lewis was all about, and I hope that he helps you do that this morning. I want you to look back with me at Psalm 19, starting in verse 1. It says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. It's proclaiming. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There's no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. C.S. Lewis once remarked on Psalm 19, he said, I take this to be the greatest poem in the Psalms and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. And it's easy to see why. The scripture says that the world is simply radiating with the goodness and glory of God. Laughter, the sun, the moon, the stars, coffee, friendships, romance, Everywhere you turn are declarations of the glory of God. And so you and I have to decide, what are we going to do with those declarations? Are we going to ignore them? Are we going to embrace them and wonder? This is the path that we have every single day in our lives. When we Christians see in the world the love of God, and when we see the gospel of Jesus Christ, his creation of the world, and his incarnation into the world, and his death at the price of the world, and for his resurrection at the sake of the world, what we see and what we find is a God, and we are floored by the fact that he would do this for us. We believe that our response to the life and gospel is wonder. But not only that, but we believe that wonder empowers obedience. That there's a, there's kind of a holy energy to wonder, that whenever you are in awe of God, you don't sin. Think about it. When you're in awe of God and of who he is, and when you're worshiping God, you don't want to sin. Sin seems small and weak and counterfeit. So that's why we as a church seek to be in wonder of God, so that we don't sin. Because our tendency often in the Christian life is to drift into Christian moralism, of trying to serve God out of duty in an effort to please him. But whenever you try to do this, what you find is that there's a way to serve God that doesn't actually serve God, right? Like as soon as you begin to boil down the Christian life into a, set, a checklist of do's and don'ts is the moment you turn Christianity into an impossible religion. As Lewis says, no man knows how bad he is till he has tried very hard to be good. So Lewis helps us see that Christian moralism is poison. And the gospel wonder is the antidote. Lewis helps us see that Christian moralism is poison and the gospel wonder is the antidote. Lewis awakens in us the difference between religion and wonder and the gospel. Listen to what Lewis says. He says, A perfect man would never act from a sense of duty. He'd always want the right thing more than the wrong one. Duty is only a substitute for love of God and of other people. Like a crutch, which is a substitute for a leg. I love this. This is classic Lewis. He says, most of us need the crutch at times, but of course it's idiotic to use the crutch when our own legs, our own loves, our own tastes, our own habits can do the journey on their own. So if we want to practically live out holiness in our life, the goal is not to try harder. 
It's not to be better. It's not to do better. The goal is to live in wonder. The Bible in Lewis speaks of a different way. Psalm 42 says, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. And again in Psalm 143, it says, I stretch out my hands to you. My soul longs for you as in a parched land. That's not the language of moralism. That's the language of people who are in love with God. And so that's our aim and our hope for us as a church every single day. And the primary place where we find our love for God and where our love is stirred for God is in His Word. Like, yes, the heavens declare the glory of God, and yet in His Word we see the clearest expression of who God is. Look back at verse 7 in in Psalm 19. It says, The law of the Lord is perfect. And what does it do? It revives the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. So what does it say the Bible does for you? You read it, and it revives your soul. You read it, and it makes you wise. You read it, and it makes your heart rejoice. And you read it, and it brings you understanding. In the gospel, God is not wanting to just change our outward behavior to help us obey the rules, to live within the lines. But instead, he calls us to take all of our longings. And what he does in the gospel is he takes all of our longings and all of our desires and he raises them up to himself. He puts them in their proper place. A moral-driven Christianity is a weak Christianity. But a gospel-centered A wonder-saturated Christianity is a strong and a biblical Christianity. And that's the kind of strong, resilient, wonder-filled Christianity that we're talking about. We long to be the kind of church where we laugh at sin because we see it as the cheap, counterfeit knockoff that it is to the wonder and the glory of God. That's who we want to be in our hearts And I think if we're deep down, we don't want to be conformed outwardly, living a life just for other people. We want to be changed on the inside. And that's what Lewis speaks to, to get to that wonder. So Lewis first helps us see that religion is poison, but that Jesus and his gospel beckons us into a life of wonder and astonishment. And secondly, Lewis helps us see wonder by helping us look beyond the veil of familiarity. Lewis had the ability to see and to feel things that we often become numb to. We often become numb to the things that God has created. As John Piper says, Lewis helps me awaken my dazed soul so that the realities of life and God in heaven are seen and felt by me. Things that if we didn't have them, we'd pay a million dollars to get them, but in having them, we ignore. Like our eyes and our fingers. Lewis was acutely aware of the graces that God gives us in life, the things that we are numb to every day. Let me show you what I mean. Lewis wrote a science fiction series called Out of the Silent Planet. It's a really good series. I kind of read it for uh, this message. It's a few books. They're not that long. Uh, But in this series, basically they follow a, a man who gets caught up in a cosmic struggle between good and evil. And uh, the struggle takes him to different planets, different worlds. And when he lands on one of these new planets for the first time, the narrator describes the world that he steps into. 
And this is what he says. Listen to Lewis's attention to details in life. He says, At long last he reached the wooded part. There was an undergrowth of feathery vegetation about the height of gooseberry hushes, colored like sea anemones. Above this were taller growths, strange trees with tube-like trunks of gray and purple, spreading rich canopies over his head in which orange and silver and blue were the predominant colors. Here, with the aid of the tree trunks, he could keep his feet more easily. And this is the good part. The smells in the forest were beyond all that he had ever conceived. To say that they made him feel hungry and thirsty would be misleading. Almost they created a new kind of hunger and thirst. A longing that seemed to flow over from the body into the soul in which was a heaven to feel. Again and again he stood still, clinging to some branch to steady himself. And he breathed it all in as if breathing had become a kind of ritual. I love that. For Lewis, every day was like waking up in a new and a strange world. To Lewis, waking up was waking up in a wonderful world. Where most of us wake up and most days we pull down the blinds when the sun comes up, right? The the sun's hitting our eyes so we pull down the blinds. What Lewis would say, he'd be more likely to say, look, he did it again. He made the sun rise again. Can you believe it? The sun rose again. This is the world that Lewis lived in every day. When you read Lewis, and I hope that you will read Lewis as a result of this, any book you pick up is worth your while. But when you read Lewis, his stories have the, ma- the strange effect of making you appreciate your world more, not less. When I read Lewis, I become more aware of the things in this life. And that separates Lewis from almost every other fiction writer I've ever countered. He knew the power of story. And he uses it to help you awaken your heart to the beauty of God. Lewis reminds us that in God's world, there's always something to be astonished about. Even if the only thing astonishing about an object, like maybe a rock, is the simple fact that it exists when it need not exist. Everything becomes something worth looking at, appraising. The sun, the trees, the feeling of your arms against the cloth of your chair. Lewis helps take us off autopilot. And I feel like that's where most of us live in our lives, just going by, doing the things, but not really appreciating what God has given us. But Lewis helps you to appreciate things big and small. And lastly, Lewis helps us see wonder by teaching the value of self-forgetfulness. Lewis helps us see the wonder of the gospel by teaching the value of self-forgetfulness. Focusing on your own sinful life is not going to bring you wonder. Because wonder is not in you, it's in God. God can't help but be wonderful. He's amazing, he is endless, he is limitless. So God is where we go if we want to find wonder. Not deep in ourselves, not deep into introspection, but to God. The moment we take our eyes off of God is the moment that we lose the wonder. I've heard it said this way, we must climb out of our own mind and scale the mountain of God in order to see the view of wonder. Lewis puts it this way, the more we let God take us over, the more truly ourselves we become. Because he made us. He invented us. He invented all the different people that you and I were intended to be. It is when I turn to Christ 
when I give up myself to his personality, that I first begin to have a real personality of my own. There's freedom in forgetting yourself. There's freedom in letting go of who you think you should be and who others want you to be to know who Christ is telling you that you are. There is wonder in having a gospel-centered identity. An identity that does not terminate on yourself, but actually terminates in the goodness of God. True humility is self-forgetfulness. As Piper says, he says, humility can set you free because when you think about yourself less, you are free to think about Christ more. Though all the world unites us and tells us that there is joy in self-absorption, the gospel is countercultural and tells us that a tr- life truly lived is one that is lost for Jesus Christ. Let me give you an example. Earlier we were singing, right? And uh, it doesn't happen to me every time, right? But whenever we're singing worship songs to God, sometimes, and, and I hope that you've been there, sometimes you lose yourself in the moment, right? Just think about a time in your life where you have lost yourself in worship of God. It's just everything else just sort of melts away, and it's just you and God in that moment. The minute that you begin to think about the fact that you're worshiping God is the minute that you have lost the wonder, Right? Like when I'm singing and I'm singing out to God, all of a sudden when I become aware of my own voice as I'm singing, I've lost the wonder. Because now I'm thinking about, man, I wonder, I don't sing that well. I wonder if my neighbor can hear me, right? I've lost the focus of the wonder which was on God himself. It's the same in life. The moment you begin to take your eyes off of Jesus and to focus on yourself and on your own life, you've lost the wonder. Lewis helps us see wonder by teaching the value of self-forgetfulness. So as we draw to a close this morning, I I hope that you get a sense of Lewis's unnatural grasp of the truth. I hope you get a sense of Lewis's unnatural grasp of the truth and his unnatural, unwavering wonder in life. And I think it's so, so important for us to talk about people like Lewis and talk about others who who understand that life is about wonder because that's exactly what it's supposed to be about. You and I are meant to be astonished at the gospel. And yet it feels like every single day we go on autopilot. That we forget that Jesus actually died. And he actually rose from the grave. And that there is an actual heaven with pleasures at God's right hand forever. We go through life with no joy when God calls us to live in joy. So as a result of this, I hope you do two things. First, become lovers of your Bible. Become lovers of your Bible. There is no other place in the world where you get to see God more clearly than in these pages. Become lovers of your Bible. It is the food that you are longing for, and in them we see Jesus. And secondly, in some ways I encourage you to read C.S. Lewis for the sake of your own heart. You see, when I watch TV sitcoms and when I watch The Office or Parks and Rec or New Girl or whatever new show's on, I feel my heart shrinking. 
And I don't know if you've had that experience there, but, but whenever I watch those shows, I feel my heart shrinking. And yet when I read C.S. Lewis, I feel my heart and I feel my world expanding. I find myself finding desires and longings that I did not know that I had. So read Lewis. I start with the Chronicles of Narnia. Read them for yourself and read them for your children. It is so important, I think, to read Narnia to your children. Because kids live every single day in wonder and awe. Everything to them is new and wonderful. And they're actually a step ahead of us adults who have lost the wonder. And so you can use Lewis and Narnia to show them that there is someone who is behind all the wonder, who is even more wonderful. So I want to end with a sort of a passage from the Chronicles of Narnia. And uh, if you're unfamiliar with the story, it's a novel about some kids who stumble into another world of good and evil, of tragedy, and they meet a king named King Aslan. He's a Christ-like figure who rescues them time and time again. And in this uh, excerpt, it's from one of the books, and in this we find our protagonist sad about leaving the land of Narnia and having to go back to the real world, the real human world. They didn't want to do that. And so they have this conversation with King Aslan, and this is how it goes. Lucy said, this is one of the kids, Lucy said, Please, Aslan, before you go, will you tell us when we can come back to Narnia again? Please, oh, do-do, make it soon. Dearest, said Aslan very gently, you and your brother will never come back to Narnia. Oh, Aslan, said Edmund and Lucy both together in despairing voices. You're two old children, said Aslan, and you must begin to come close to your own world now. It isn't Narnia, you know, sobbed Lucy. it's you. We shall not meet you there, and how can we live never meeting you? But you shall meet me, dear one, said Aslan. Are you there too, sir, said Edmund? I am, said Aslan, but there I have another name. You must learn to know me by that name. This was the very reason why you were brought to Narnia, that by knowing me here for a little, you may know me better there. When I read Lewis, I long for the lion. When I read Lewis, I long for Jesus Christ. And I hope this morning that you would take uh, this advice and read the Bible and read Lewis and build your longings for Jesus. It's what leads to gospel wonder. So I'm going to pray for us at our time, that at this time, that God would just sort of stretch our hearts and help us to uh, see the wonder and see the amazement. So I invite you to, to bow your heads at this time. To think about the King who died for you who rose from the grave for you, and that beckons you to walk with him every single moment of every day. Dear Heavenly Father, you are the king. You are the king of this world. You're the king of our lives. When I read Lewis and when I think about King Aslan and what he did in that story, Lord, it reminds me of you and what you have done for us. That this is our story and this is the part that you decided to play in that story. That you didn't abandon us, but instead you embraced us, rescued us, died for us, rose for us, and lived for us. 
And in turn, Lord, we turn our hearts to you and are in all of you. I pray for these people, Lord, that they would, that their hearts would just be filled in this moment with a sense of wonder, or if not that, maybe just a longing for wonder in their life. And I pray that they would be satisfied as they seek to fulfill that wonder in you and in you alone and not the things of this world. We love you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So at this time, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. And uh, the Lord's Supper is very meaningful for us. Because in the same way that Lewis puts Jesus in the cross before us, the Lord's Supper also puts the cross before us. See, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he did something very simple. He had dinner with his friends. And during that meal, he took a piece of bread and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then he took a cup of wine and he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink of it in remembrance of me. Why do I say it every single week, but I think you need to be reminded of it every single week, that the Lord's Supper is an invitation for you, that there is a place for you at God's table. That God beckons you back to the joy and the wonder of life with him, no matter where you have been this week. So I invite you at this time to, uh, to begin to reminisce and to think about the cross. I'm going to invite you forward. I'm going to pray for us one more time, and I'm going to invite you forward. You can come down the center aisles and take of the Lord's Supper. And if you're a follower of Jesus, uh, whether you're a member of our church or not, I encourage you to come forward and take this family meal with us. If you're exploring what it means to follow Jesus, I'm going to be on the side. Feel free to talk to me. If you feel what Lewis felt in his heart in his younger years, that, that longing for the sense of the other, I'd love to tell you about what can fulfill that. So at this time, I'm going to pray for us just one more time, and then we're going to come forward and take the Lord's Supper together. So let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you. We love you. I thank you for the Lord's Supper and what it means to us. I thank you for the cross. I pray that it would be central in our eyes, Lord, that it would be right in front of us and that we would focus on it every day of our lives. I pray that where we have uh, failed you this week, Lord, that you would forgive us and that you would remind us that your grace uh, cast our sins as far as the east is from the west. We love you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.